Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The race is on and Max Verstappen took the world championship lead with victory in the Monaco Grand Prix. But he needed some help from Ferrari and Charles Leclerc to do so, with a drive shaft problem preventing them from starting from pole position. I'm Ed Straw and joining me to explain how and why this all happened are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well Mark, we've had two years away from Monaco. It's absolutely great to have F1 back there, isn't it? It may not have been a blockbusting race, but just seeing these cars wending their way through the impossibly narrow streets is just something else isn't it yeah it's always a fantastic spectacle isn't it and um it's just like a celebration of f1 and a, a celebration of um like a, <laughs> life as we used to know it i guess but um and, and hopefully we'll know it again uh sometime down the road but uh yeah always always a fantastic spectacle not always a great race yeah that's just the nature of it but scott mitchell out in Sweden, obviously I'm I'm here on the ground in Monaco. You're in your your Swedish palace, as I like to uh, to consider it. But there are people criticising about how it's processional and boring, and and the race there wasn't a great deal of movement. But I think this this race does still have something special, even when it's a, a relatively boring one, doesn't it? Yeah, there's there's enough going on throughout throughout the week, and there's enough there's enough that's unique about it when um, when we get into the competitive stuff across Saturday and Sunday that. That more than merits a place on on the calendar. It is a, in some ways, a, a sort of a relic of a bygone era for F one. But I love it purely because it's probably the only race in Formula One that, if you tried to make it happen now, you'd never get anywhere trying to make a Monaco Grand Prix happen now, would you? But so so it's just it's just one of those things that uh, if it wasn't there, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to create it. Uh, so it's something that should be protected and celebrated because yeah, there's always there's always something about the Monaco weekend that that becomes special and is special, and we saw that quite a lot. I mean, qualifying was obviously a lot better than the race um, this weekend, but it's still something that's going to go down as um, a memorable, memorable moment from the 2021 season. To be honest, the Monaco Grand Prix was always a pretty stupid idea, even when it first uh, was come up with, and uh, Formula One cars. Yeah, you can say the modern cars have outgrown it, but Grand Prix cars were always a, a little bit too big. But I have to say, it was quite nice being here. This is kind of the most normal Grand Prix I feel we've had because although the capacity was limited, there were fans, not quite in abundance, but there were plenty around the place. And it it actually started to have the feel of an event, which Grand Prix obviously haven't from a on-the-ground perspective recently. It felt a little bit like a, a moderately busy a moderately busy Friday at a normal Grand Prix. Let's put it that way on the Sunday. So uh, so there we go. Plus the Monegasque police decided to change all the ways you could drive so it was impossible to get into the car park and it created all sorts of comedy on Sunday. So that they're starting oh, to so classic Monaco then. So it really is getting back into it. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. And it's uh yeah, very fortunate to be here. But let's let's pile into it. But Scott, this weekend has to go down as a missed opportunity for Leclerc and Ferrari, doesn't it? Took pole position, had the problem with a left side drive shaft. 
that manifested itself on the reconnaissance lap. So any chance of that home race win was lost. So how much sympathy do you have for Leclerc? Uh, quite a lot. Um, he he did a mega lap at the start of qualifying, and he done a he done a great job all week to be in that situation um, to even be fighting for pole, let alone score pole, having missed all of FP one at a track where just doing laps and building confidence and a rhythm is so important was a phenomenal recovery. And then uh, yeah, he did that great first lap in in Q three, got the provisional pole, which then obviously became the real pole when he shunted and caused the red flag and stopped anyone else improving. Um, obviously, he's ended up paying the penalty for that crash, or it looks like he has, because it, it, it would seem logical that the crash has it would seem logical that the crash has caused that drive shaft problem, even though Ferrari has sort of left the door open for it to be a potential standalone issue on the grounds there. Obviously it wasn't that side of the car that got hit and there was no external physical damage when uh that, that was obvious. They didn't assess the drive shaft because it it wasn't hit so um yeah until ferrari turn around and say a hundred percent yes that was a consequence of the crash there is still going to be this bit of wiggle room where you say well maybe it wasn't leclerc's fault at all and he's just def he's just you know desperately unlucky but at the moment it's kind of probably if i it's impossible to put a number on it but i'll try it probably 95 percent sympathy five percent well it is kind of your fault but yeah overwhelming feeling of I'm gutted for him it's amazing he's got this record of still hasn't finished a Monaco Grand Prix has he now he hasn't it didn't start this one when he should have been on pole and I I think based on signs Carlos Sainz's pace in second place there's every chance that Charles was going to win that race so yeah I, I, I do I have to feel sorry for him regardless of whether it's his fault or not I have to feel sorry for him he hasn't even got to the checkered flag in an F2 race he's done two F2 starts at Monaco as well and didn't get to the checkered flag in in either of them. I, I'm perhaps slightly less generous in that ultimately it does appear that the crash he had, which was his mistake, obviously deliberate. No, that's just a uh, joke there. Very clearly not deliberate, just to be absolutely clear. It's very likely that caused the problem. Gary Anderson had a bit of a look at look at it, and obviously it's all connected at the back there, isn't it? So he suggested it was a, a sort of a, basically a thwack through the diff uh, caused it. But until we know the full answer there is that 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 window open but wouldn't it have been amazing to have a monogas driver starting from pole very likely then going on to win the monaco grand prix louis chiron was the last to, to do that in 1931 had a tribute helmet to, to louis chiron so that that would have been fantastic but mark where did this ferrari pace come from because it was it was a genuinely quick car pretty much from the off wasn't it it was and um We've been comparing it to the McLaren in the races so far because that's about where it races. It's a, you know, it, it contends the the unofficial title for best of the rest behind Merck and Red Bull, and it, it's very clearly got a very different performance pattern to the McLaren. It's slow down the straights and it's not as quick through high speed corners, but it is doing similar lap times, and so by inference, its lap time is coming from. Um, exceptional performance in the slow corners and it's um, very agile in slow corners and has a lot of downforce uh, in slow corners now because we've only been comparing it to the mclaren we've just taken that as a trait for that part of the you know the the, the grid that's sort of half a second away from the, the the pole sort of thing 
But when we go to Monaco and its its power difference doesn't matter a damn and it the drag doesn't matter, we've seen just how exceptional it is in in, the, in those types of corners. It's it's even better than the Red Bull, it seems. So yeah, this is the first time we've we've seen that. Um, Lando Norris has been had been studying the the data um, very very deeply in, in the the few races um, we've had before this one. And you know, you you probably heard he texted signs after Barcelona and said, "I think you're going to win Monaco," based on what I've seen. And signs, you know, so, could see where he was coming from, but didn't didn't share that belief until he tried the car on Thursday, and then he absolutely did. He thought, "I can put this on pole and I can win this race." He was absolutely sure of it. Um, and so, yes, it's it, it. I think if you were designing a car only for one track. Um, it would be a lot like the Ferrari. Well, that's why it's such a shame, isn't it, that they've missed out because there's not really another Monaco on the calendar. Once you might have said that Hungary, the Hungaroring, is is Monaco without the walls, as people used to call it. But really, it, it's not quite the same. So I guess that might be a track they do better at. But this really felt like a, a great opportunity for them to bank a, an absolute hatful of points and get their, get their win for the season, which have been absolutely amazing. But... Yeah, a huge blow for for Charles Leclerc. Just think about all the the pressure on his shoulders as the as the home hero, and yeah, just just went right. And that moment, Scott, when you could hear him on the radio, sort of going, "No, no, no," the gearbox, and he realised on that reconnaissance lap must have been absolutely crushing for him. I think I was trying to work out when I thought about it after the race what would have been crueler. Well, obviously, what he went through, which was cruel enough, but. Was it be- was it not better that it happened then? Like I know it sucks not to be able to take the start and and everything, but once you've taken the start and everything's real, and he probably would have led into turn one, given Verstappen said he didn't have much, he didn't have that much grip off of starting second, and only just kept Bottas behind into the first corner. So Leclerc probably would have led the first part of the race, wouldn't he? And every mile completed every lap ticked off that feet the feeling that he's going to win is just going to get closer and closer and at some point it would have failed and he he would have retired and it would have that would have just been even harder to stomach wouldn't it so i guess the (laughs) the sort of just slightly less cruel way of doing that is the bandage got ripped off really quickly really early didn't it yeah, um, uh, that, that's that's a good good consolation. <laughs> well, it's not a consolation so much as just like if you're going to have it, just what's the least painful way of having it? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a fair point. But ultimately, it was interesting because I spoke to him after qualifying, and obviously he lost a little bit of time at the start of the lap, and he's really pushing on. And he said, "Well, I did that because that's that's my strength. That's how I get these amazing qualifying performances." And he did say, "Oh, do I need to change what I'm doing? I, I don't know." Um, but yeah. It's Monaco, you pay a, a very, very high price for small errors. But Mark, you wrote quite an interesting piece on the race website, which argued Leclerc probably would have been on pole, even if the three aggrieved parties, Max Verstappen, Valtteri Bottas and Carlos Sainz, had completed those final laps that, of course, they couldn't because of the red flag. They had various tales of being on course for top spots. So can you just sift through what we know about where people were in the laps and and why you think Leclerc was in a pretty good position anyway. They'd all completed sector one. They're all, they're all, they were all running behind Leclerc, obviously. And um, 
Science, I think, um, could still have been contesting poll. Um, well, they, they could all, in theory, be in contesting poll, but I think science you can make the strongest case for because he was only hundreds down on Leclerc through sector one, even though he was a big chunk down to his own sector one best in on his first Q3 run. Um, I think he the, the Ferrari was absolutely mega through sector two, which you know is the the big bulk of the lap. It's it's forty seven percent of the lap on the timing, so. That's where it was fantastic all weekend. It had, um, well, it had three and a half tenths on Verstappen through there, but Verstappen's best, he made an error at the chicane. He says it cost him about a tenth. So just give him that. It's still still well over two tenths faster than the Red Bull through sector two. Um, Verstappen had gone purple in sector one, that's true, but it was by hundredths faster than Leclerc and, and Sainz. He wasn't even even with the improved track grip. Was he going to get two tenths more um, than the, the 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 Ferrari for the remainder of the of the lap? Um, Leclerc wasn't going to do Leclerc's lap wasn't shaping up into being better than his first lap. We don't know whether Sciences was because we didn't see it far enough into it. But let's suppose Leclerc's lap wasn't going to be better than his first one. Could Verstappen have done a better time in the remainder than than Sainz? I'm not, I'm not sure he could have done if if everything had gone if they if they both got clean laps. Um, Bottas wasn't quite as quick as the Red Bull in either sector one or sector two or sector three. So yeah, he was within hundredths after sector one, but it's a very short sector. So I don't think Bottas would have been in play at all. But I think it would have been a shootout between Sainz and Verstappen and my. And Leclerc, uh, based on Leclerc's first time, and my my hunch is that it would have been a Ferrari. It might have even been a Ferrari front locker. There is no quicker lap than the lap that cannot be completed for external factors. It's that. It's it's always the way. Uh, that's that's just the the nature. You can understand why they're frustrated, but equally, I think it's important to note that Leclerc did get that banker in on the first run, and that's really important. That's actually been really important this season in Q three sessions doing it on the first run so you've got that insurance if the conditions change or if someone crashes yeah that that counts for something scott we've mentioned the gearbox problem but you you heard from mattia bonotto the ferrari team principal after the race so where do you think it comes down what have they said about the problem was it pure misfortune was ferrari a little bit lax in 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 its checks What, what are they saying well i think that's what they need to um that's what they need to understand and that's what they're going to try to establish in the analysis uh, that follows this event. Um, because as I mentioned, I think briefly, they, they didn't check the the drive shaft because it was the, the left side drive shaft and that the impact wasn't on that side. So it wasn't the, the, the area of focus. They replaced all of the parts that were damaged because that is, that's what the rules are under Park Ferme. If the parts are damaged, you can change them. So they changed everything that was relevant on the right hand side of the car. But what they want to look at, what they want to look into now is why didn't they detect that damage? Could could they have detected? Could they have detected a a fault in the drive shaft sooner than they did? Um, and then obviously secondary to that is okay. What actually happened to the drive shaft? What was it? as I think everyone expects, was it just a consequence of the forces um, put through it as a result of the 
the accident and the hit on the right rear um, and, and what exactly happened to it. But I, I do, I did get the impression from Bonotto that the priority now is basically working out if they could have spotted it sooner because basically it took them a, mat- a manner of a matter of what I think it was probably two or three minutes um, assessing the car when Leclerc brought it back after that reconnaissance lap to realize that it was a, it was a problem that wasn't going to be fixed. Um, whereas if they'd been able to find it on the Saturday, even if they'd had to wait because of Park Fermi to, to change it until Sunday morning, they'd have been able to make make the repairs um, in time. What I don't know is whether or not they could have identified that fault and repaired it without doing an entire gearbox change. I'm not entirely sure sort of how interlinked everything is. I know that they're I know that in the past when a drive shaft has been changed, you have to basically break a seal to to do that. I don't know if that's linked explicitly to the gearbox itself. So whether that would have necessitated the five place penalty for a full new gearbox, for example, I, I don't I don't know exactly because those those rules are a bit more they're a bit above my pay grade. So maybe you can answer that one, Ed. <laughs> Nothing's above your pay grade, Scott. I, I think it, it it will depend on ex- exactly what you're changing and exactly what the circumstances are from it so I think it probably would have likely without knowing the exact detail I'm only sort of reading between the lines of what they said I think if they detected it it probably good chance it would have triggered a a penalty but it it is an interesting one Gary Anderson did a piece on the other race website and he said he was a little bit surprised it wasn't detected because obviously yes the impact was on one side of the car and the problem was on the on the left but it is all still very much connected isn't it so uh, it's a little bit of a surprise they didn't have a bit of a look but the question is, was it a diagnostic failure or was it just one of those things? And and it could be be either. Did you, do you have a feeling on that, Mark? I guess it's very tempting to the fact that it went so quickly as soon as there was sort of significant talk being put through it suggests that it was obviously pretty close to, to, to the failure already. But there are obviously restrictions in what you can look at. It's very tempting to assume it was related, isn't it? Um, circumstantially. I mean, it, it, there's a chance it could have been damaged some other way, you know, some earlier curb hopping that he'd done or something like that. But whatever. I mean, it, it's it's until we know exactly which uh, which part it was. Um, it, was a, it was some form of linkage between the drive shaft and the internal part of the wheel. Um, until we know which part it was and how that is covered in the Park Fermi regulations and. Um, whether that would have been, replacing would have incurred a penalty, it's it's uh, difficult to make a judgment on. But we do know that it would have been awfully helpful had Leclerc not had the crash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is important to note the correlation doesn't equal causation. So that'll be a, that'll be a, something that we really need to look into. The only thing I'd add is that um, Benotto was very keen to clarify that they didn't take a risk with with the gearbox. Um, I think he said. Before the race, uh, and I think he said after the race a couple of times as well that they, it, they, he used the word gamble. That there, there was no gamble. They'd, it wasn't a fault in the gearbox itself, and that was what they'd um, inspected. There, there, there was no risk of that failing. So, um, yeah, I think he was keen to stress that they hadn't taken any unnecessary risk in terms of sending him out, which obviously then just lends itself to the theory that it was just something they either overlooked or had no reason to to check or no ability to to check and that is ultimately what 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 caught them out yeah and ultimately whatever the cause there was no Charles Leclerc in the race so that's why we've been able to 
kind of take the Leclerc story and the qualifying story and uh, and very much set it aside. So we had a 19 driver Grand Prix with Charles Leclerc having to watch from the sidelines. Well, Mark, we're now come to what is traditionally the beginning of our, our race review podcast, but Monaco being Monaco, um, relatively straightforward. So was there ever any serious threat to Max Verstappen and Red Bull once Leclerc was out of the way in the race? Not really. All he had to do was cover off Valtteri from the, the grippier side, uh, which he did quite uh, ruthlessly. As you saw, he was angled very aggressively towards Valtteri, even even when the cars were stationary. And But he absolutely needed to do that because Valtteri almost made it level with them. Um, you know, just level with the rear wheels almost um, by the time he got there. So, yeah, once he'd done that, no, there was, I mean, that, that was it really. It, it was then just a case of what what pace do you choose to run the race at? You're the leader, you can run at any pace you want because nobody's going to overtake you. And so it then became a bit of a bit of a strategy game. Could you keep Valtteri away from the undercut range as the pit stop window approached? And that question answered itself as Valtteri's tyres gave out long before the pit window opened. And then it was when's the gap going to appear to drop into? Um, that didn't really need to concern Max because if he didn't have a gap to drop into, neither did anyone else um, that, that that could threaten them. But, I mean, Valtteri was five seconds, four and a half, five seconds behind by then anyway. So all he had to do was a routine pit stop and, you know, not get caught out by any safety car. And it was very, very straightforward. And so, yeah, I would say Max rarely drove at more than 80% of his capability the whole race. Yeah, that's the privilege of pole position at that race. But really important win, though, for Verstappen, isn't it? Because we talked extensively on the podcast about how really small swings have made the difference in the first four races. And there was kind of a danger that, that Red Bull were missing a few too many chances. So for Red Bull to get that win, Verstappen to do it, particularly after missing out on pole position, that's, I think that was a, a, an important moment for them in the, in, in the championship. And probably lays to bed a few demons for Max Verstappen, doesn't it, Scott? Because we had uh, we had Verstappen a few years ago, had that FP3 crash that potentially cost him a, a shot at victory. So, uh, yeah, he's finally got that Monaco win. Yeah, he made a, he made a reference to that in, uh, in, in the post-race press conference. Um, I think he was asked about um, whether sort of confidence here can translate into a good performance in Baku uh, because... Um, this is another street circuit, but um, Max was basically pointing out that is that it all comes down to the quality of car you've got because um, he's been quick in Monaco before and he hasn't won in Monaco before. Um, but part of that he admitted is because he's shunted too much in the past. <laughs> so uh, no, I think this was um, I think this was something that meant a lot to him and and, and the team. Um, his race engineer was. Uh, not emotional, but very proud, made it clear he was very proud of him on the team radio after the race. I think it's uh, it's just significant for a few reasons for Verstappen. He obviously, he obviously leads the championship for the first time in his career. Um, but I just think from the point of view of, I just Mon- Monaco is just a different race, isn't it? To put your name on the list of winners of, um, it's got to be second after your home race hasn't it? It's probably not another race on the calendar that would mean quite as much besides um, having a home Grand Prix to win. 
in a way it is his own Grand Prix, isn't it? Because he does live in Monaco along with every other Grand Prix driver ever to have uh, existed, uh, <laughs> pretty much. But yeah, a, a, a big win. And obviously there's this little side show with all the talk about the flexi wings going on, which happened particularly on Wednesday. Uh, no, on Thursday even, which was the the practice day where we had Toto Wolf and Christian Horner talking about uh, the flexi wings and the protests. Obviously, we've talked about it in the previous podcast. So there's there's all these little subplots going on in this this championship fight. But Mark, you you mentioned Bottas. Sainz obviously did kind of pick up the challenge, didn't he? He he did get moderately close to Verstappen at one stage, not not close enough to make it especially uh, especially interesting. Then he kind of dropped back. That just seemed to be just losing ground again in, in traffic. But Sainz was never really able to be a serious threat, was he? No, I mean, he, he lost all that time behind Bottas in the first stint. Um, and he tried pushing. He, you know, they said, do you fancy try pushing? And he said, yeah, why not? Let's see. And so he started attacking. But then, as you say, he ran into traffic. He had a lot of blue flags. And so he'd been pushing pretty hard up until then. So that combination of pushing hard and then losing tyre temperature among the traffic, um, it triggered a lot of graining in the front tyres and it took a long time for that to uh, clear itself up again. So, yeah, by that time, Max was long gone and I'm sure he could have responded had he needed to anyway. Yeah, and Carlos Sainz, it was interesting because he was disappointed after qualifying. He was even a little bit disappointed after the race, wasn't he? Because he said second place perhaps didn't feel as sweet as it as it perhaps might have done, given that he knew that maybe this was a, a win-loss. But I think Carlos Sainz is going to have plenty more opportunities to fight for for wins and, and pole positions in the future. But Scott, Lando Norris, another podium for him. Second of the season. Struggled a little bit at times in the second stint. Called a car undrivable uh, at one stage. Danny Ricciardo, by contrast, down in 12th place. So what, what's Norris doing that Ricciardo isn't, other than lapping quickly? Oh, well... Um... If I had that information, Ed, I'd uh, be able to sell it to Ricardo for a princely sum, wouldn't I? <laughs> um, I think, uh, I think the the most the simplest way I can put it is that Norris is able to drive automatically in a way that actually brings the best out of the McLaren. Um, I I don't know exactly what it is that is unique about the McLaren in the way it needs to be driven, but Ricardo and his predecessor signs have commented that it does have something about it that's a bit a bit different. I'm not going to say to a conventional F1 car because there is no sort of default F1 car style, I don't think. Um but basically Norris seems to be tuned in to what the 2021 McLaren needs probably because it is fundamentally a carryover characteristic from the last couple of McLarens. And I just get the feeling with everything I'm hearing and seeing that Ricardo can't quite do that without consciously thinking about it. And there's probably no worse circuit on the calendar if you're struggling with that than Monaco because everything's happening so quickly that you don't really have time to think consciously about stuff. So you are going to be, what's the best way to put it? You're going to be defaulting to what your natural style is. And at the moment, it looks like Norris's natural style is completely at one with the McLaren and Ricardo's natural style is incompatible with it, at least on the level he needs it to be, which would explain why a deficit of two or three temps to Norris, which is pretty much what it's been at other tracks 
suddenly ballooned into sixth or seven tenths by the end of qualifying and it was uh, it was north of a second at, at certain points during during the weekend so that sort of frustration and confusion briefly got the better of Ricardo immediately after qualifying he was obviously particularly bemused and a bit um bit annoyed uh to put it politely and I think that just sort of tipped him over the edge a little bit because it was the first time the humility and the acceptance that he needs to do a better job was ever briefly clouded by a suggestion and well is it me like am I I can't possibly be this slow so maybe there is something in the car that's not quite working the way it's meant to be but then by the time we'd spoken to him later in Saturday they'd had the debrief and he'd almost sort of switched again to a more resigned frustrated still but a bit more sort of accepting position of I guess it is me because I can see some stuff that would make me go faster I just can't do it naturally behind the wheel and then obviously by the time the race comes around he's mired in traffic I I didn't see what happened but I assume he must have been boxed in or something at the start because I think he lost a place or two didn't he Um, and I guess once you're there there's not a pace advantage that you can make uh, any kind of progress so he just spends whatever it was because uh his entire race basically stuck behind other cars not being able to make progress and in the end lapped by lando so just a truly miserable weekend and one in which ricardo i think just wants to pretend never happened yeah he spent a big part of the first chunk of the race stuck behind uh kimi raikkonen who did get ahead of him but i think with ricardo he said after the race that he looks at the data and you can see some differences, but he doesn't think he can do that. So it's just about adapting to the car properly. And I think the comments he made after qualifying, I took it more to mean it was just sort of bemusement and frustration that he couldn't quite understand why, if you see what I mean, that rather than obviously he was questioning whether the chassis had a problem or whatever, but it was less out of kind of anger and more out of just, just <laughs> I'm not quite sure where it is. So interesting to see how he, uh, how he gets on. But Lando Norris, just, we've said, we've said this so many times this season, just driving really well. We weren't expecting McLaren to be a podium threat, but Mark, he reckoned his qualifying lap was one of his best in Formula One and certainly a very, very good one to put him self fifth. And from there, yeah, got the, got the podium finish again. Yeah, it's lovely. He's putting them, he's putting it all together this year, isn't he? He's, he's absolutely flawless this year. Um, this is a sort of it, like he's in the qualifying lap that didn't count because of three centimeters over the line. This he, he's done that sort of quality of lap again, hasn't he? And he just he just produces it on demand now, which is we he's always capable of these sort of performances in the previous years, but he he couldn't just turn up and guarantee to to produce them. But this year he absolutely is. Um, he's you know he's. If you're saying who are the drivers of this year, he's got to be a contender. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. And yeah, any shortcomings he has this year are, are very, very, very minor ones, just the normal ebb and flow. You can't get everything right all of the time, uh, no matter how how good you are. But shall we visit Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner, Scott? Um, he's got to deserve a little bit of sympathy, given he's retired because his front right wheel was stuck on the car, which is an extraordinary reason to retire from a Grand Prix. <laughs> it's still stuck on the car and um, it's not going to be removed from the car until the car returns to base um i what what did i say my sympathy was for leclerc was it 95 percent sympathy five percent well you know you 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 caused it 100 percent sympathy for, for for bottas i know he was being a bit bottas about 
his race other than that you know not quite able to do anything about Verstappen fading away he seemed to be really struggling with the the fronts in the the the, the first stint but what I don't know what this guy's done at some point he must have just without realizing it he must have just walked under a bunch of ladders or seen a bunch of black cats or broken a bunch of mirrors or something because if something weird happens it just almost always seems to happen to him and there's obviously no suggestion in any way that Mercedes is doing a half-baked job on Bottas's car certainly not doing anything deliberately to stitch him up there's nothing like that but he's just just unlucky and what the problem on that pit stop is is just bizarre. We've seen countless examples over the years of, um, you know, cross threading and uh, human error in terms of fixing the gun on and uh, all sorts of things. But never, I, I can't think of any example of uh, the a wheel couldn't come off. I just, <laughs> I just can't think of anything. It's like, it's like a really, really, really high tech version of um lazily using a screwdriver to try and tighten the screw and just completely rounding off the the, the screw but obviously in in a in in, in a slightly different in a slightly different sense but it's that kind of just uh, just, <laughs> just a bizarre b- b- bizarre sort of consequence that i think toto wolf described it what, what was the phrase he used just like basically just like catastrophic failure which yeah i think that fairly sums it up it certainly was a utterly bizarre failure yeah he uh he showed a few of us a, a picture he had on his phone of the of the uh wheel nut and it was totally stripped there was uh, it wasn't completely smooth but it was as good as there was nothing to grip onto which is why they're gonna have to uh talk about taking a hammer or a saw to it or something to get it off i think it's gonna have to be something even more heavy duty to do it but yeah unlucky for bottas ultimately did outperform lewis hamilton so that's uh that's no bad thing but mark um what did go so badly wrong for Lewis Hamilton, both in terms of the qualifying performance and also the fact he ended up losing places to Perez and Vettel in the race? So we're expecting him to maybe go forward, and he briefly did, but then he ended up back in seventh where he started. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental underlying problem with the car this weekend was that it didn't work its tyres hard enough, which was um, the reason it won in Barcelona and the, the reason it was in trouble here. But as you say, Valtteri dealt with that problem rather better than Lewis had. Uh, and um, he was Valtteri when when the car has got a um, sort of a, a fundamental sort of front end lack which is what it had here Valtteri tends to just go with it and just drive around it and if if you can do that sufficiently that you just nibble into the tyre temperature window, suddenly the tyre will switch on and the car will suddenly become respectable. If you're the wrong side of that threshold, it's it's nowhere. Um, that, that's just how a tyre, you know, racing tyre behaves. Um, and it, Lewis, they ended up with the same setup, but Lewis just did not believe in it, was not confident in it. Um, it, it was... He couldn't get any tire temperature. He couldn't get any tire temperature in the rear, so it was nervous under braking. You saw him have all sorts of moments in FP3. He just couldn't believe in it. He never had the confidence to go with it. And the key corner was Sandovart, which is where Valtteri was actually um, entering pretty much on faith. He 
because the message, the messages the car's sending weren't good, but he was just going through there on faith, and that was just enough to get the tire switched on, reasonable amount. And then he could get the tap with with a decent front end. He could then start generating the temperatures and the rear and the whole thing sort of half made sense. But Lewis never just just never did get it into that window, which is what um, defined his qualifying position. And then in the race, um, the, the Mercedes on both both Mercedes were just eating the tires because in order to get that little bit of temperature that they they were able to get, um, it had quite an extreme setup on it. Which just ate the tyres, and um, that that explains why the direction that Lewis wanted to go, he was overruled on because they knew that that was just going to be disastrous. Um, and it, you saw how it was with the setup that they had; it, it, it ate the tyres. There was no tread left um, on the the tyres that came off Valtteri's car on the rears, and there was very little left on Lewis's. So they couldn't have done the overcut strategy that that worked for, say, Perez or Vettel. It just they couldn't have done that. They had no tires left by the time every the pit stop window opened. So yeah, they 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 went for the undercut and it didn't work, and uh, that made Lewis even more angry. But uh, yeah, that's just the car wasn't very good, and he didn't get it into the window. Yeah, and then you ended up with Perez getting ahead up into fourth place, Sebastian Vettel as well into fifth, and Pierre Gasly sixth place. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Vettel in a minute, Pierre Gasly. Bit of a surprise for AlphaTauri to be quite so strong around Monaco, wasn't it, Scott? Yeah, it was. Um, I think the sort of general expectation, even within the team, at least sort of a week or two ago, was that this would be a difficult weekend. They'd um, they'd discovered early on that they had a bit of a weakness in low-speed corners and then that had been proven in um, Portugal and then again when they struggled again in the final sector at Barcelona. Um, But I guess... I guess similar with McLaren because McLaren went into this weekend sort of expecting to struggle a little bit. Monaco is unique, even though it is low speed. It isn't. It's not the same kind of low speed corners as you'd find on a conventional track. And there's other there's other challenges as well, including the compliance of the car over the curb and and chiefly sort of the confidence it gives the gives the drivers. So. I guess if you've got the confidence to attack, then you're always going to find a little bit more. And actually, McLaren and AlphaTauri were both good examples of that, weren't they? Because they both had one driver who seemed to be absolutely on it in Lando Norris and Pierre Gasly and one driver who just wasn't quite with it in the same way. And obviously, that was Ricardo and then Yuki Tsunoda. So, yeah, I think... (laughs) you basically take either Alpha Tauri driver as sort of evidence of why they expected to struggle, I suppose, because Gasly sort of slightly exceeded expectations because he did everything right. And Sonoda was at the other end of the extreme because everything that could have gone wrong for him, I guess, did. Um, and in the end, I think Ga- I think Gasly just sort of showed the calibre of driver he has developed into. He's had a little bit of a hit and miss start to the season, but the peaks have been really high, as high as they were last year, and um, yeah, this looked like another another example of of that because he just seemed to be able to hook everything up, and um, he he must he must have exceeded his expectations that that he had going into this weekend. Yeah, he was certainly very happy afterwards. Uh, Sergio Perez, just a quick word on him. 
came through to fourth, qualified ninth, obviously. Q3 was disastrous for him and traffic and struggled to get the, the front tyres up to temperature. But for him, it's just all about not being on top of the car for qualifying. He managed to overcut three cars in the race, which, yes, he had the car pace to do it, but still needed to be uh, to be done by him. Uh, got a decent result out of it. Still waiting for that first Red Bull podium. But, yeah, a little bit more work to do there, but solid point. So that's a, that's a, a positive for him and yeah he's had his five races that he's talked about in terms of getting his eye in so we look to Baku and now expecting him to find a bit more performance on Saturday but I think he's slightly surprised by just how hard that qualifying performance is to find in terms of the car he said it's just it's difficult when there's things you have to adapt to and conditions change in the tyre when you've been in a team for a long time you have a bit of an advantage as Verstappen has so yeah more work to be done there for him well Scott we had Aston Martin drivers, both in the top 10. Sebastian Vettel in fifth place and Lance Stroll did the long first stint and came through in eighth place. Had a few moments when he clattered over the, the swimming pool exit chicane, but double points, quite a positive day for Aston Martin, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think they got nearly triple the number of points today as they did in the first four races combined. Um, and it actually elevated the team to fifth in the the championship, to be honest, if um, based on how the first three or four races went, if you offered them fifth in the championship at the end of the year, they'd I think they'd bite your hand off for it, to be honest, because that car's not been particularly competitive. And this was a very good way of Vettel scoring those first points for for Aston, because I think he's, I think Spain was was quite encouraging for for, for a couple of reasons, and this was obviously the second time he'd banked a top ten start. Um, and obviously that being Monaco immediately makes it more likely that you're going to get those um, those first points. Uh, but he was then able to actually turn, you know, just a a breakthrough points finish into a really good result, um, which I think is going to be, I think it's, it's just going to be a bit of a weight off his shoulder. I think it's going to be uh, a shot in the arm for the team. Uh, because I think they've been a little bit distracted in the first few races and some of their operations haven't been particularly sharp. Um, but but this was the opposite. This was this was brilliant. This was this this was the team back to almost back to its best in terms of maximising opportunities and Vettel's ability to tough it out against Gasly when he came out of the pits after that slightly longer first stint was a good example of that. And Stroll's drive, extending that first stint, having the pace to do it, um, w- w- was a was just the 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 icing on the cake because if you uh I can't remember off the top of my head Ed you might be able to fill in the mental blank that I've got here but if you turn whatever it was would it have been like eighth on the grid and outside the top 10 for stroll into a double points finish fifth and eighth that's a that's a really good job in the midfield I know that a couple of cars obviously hit problems but either way that's a really strong result yeah, they've done well. Yeah, Stroll started down in 13th. Mark, what do you make of Vettel? Because this is a really strong weekend from him. And I think because Aston Martin has struggled, everyone's just kind of got drawn into just thinking it's all going terribly for, for Vettel. But he, he looked really good this weekend, didn't he? And he seems quite happy about life. Yeah, green shoots, green shoots of recovery were there in, in Spain. And um, he's put he put it all together this weekend. Right from the moment the cars were running on Thursday, he looked strong. He looked uh, quicker than Stroll immediately, and that you saw that pattern just be maintained throughout the, the weekend. 
and then he delivered a beautiful result. I mean, that looked like a proper world-class driver in a, a fairly average car. And it wasn't just the way he toughed it out with Gasly. It was the, the rapid way he closed down on Hamilton and Gasly before that and having given himself a big gap to look after the tyres. And then as the pit stop window opened, really started nailing it. And for a while, he was lapping as quick as Verstappen. Not that Verstappen was anywhere near his limit, but he was you know, among the quickest cars on the track going way quicker than um, Hamilton or Gasly were able to go. And he just came out, out of nowhere for, for, for those two. You know, he, he wasn't even on their radar as a threat around the pit stops. And all of a sudden, there he was overcutting them both. So, yeah, it was a, it was a terrific performance, I thought. And um, that was the first proper glimpse of the, 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 the old Vettel we've seen this year, I think. Yeah, very, very encouraging just being able to dig in and deliver that pace when he when he really needs it extremely positive looking down the, the bottle for the last few points very very congested Esteban Ocon got ninth ahead of Antonio Giovinazzi now Alpine had pretty high hopes coming into the weekend but ninth place for Ocon represented actually a pretty good result so why were things so disappointing they were um having pretty much the same problems as Mercedes they just could not get the tires to work at all um, so yeah, they, it's it's obviously not something that they were expecting. They were talking about you know f- continuing to fight with Ferrari, which they'd been doing um, in Portimao and uh, Barcelona. It did comparable performance to the Ferrari, but clearly just um, not able to switch the tires on anything like as well. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of head scratching going on there, and a, lo- a lot of uh, post weekend analysis needed. Yeah, Alonso was really not irritated, but after qualifying, just I just couldn't get the fronts in and so if you haven't got the front end grip around Monaco you're not going to be lapping well but Ocon was able to get a little bit more out of it a few little power steering changes for Alonso this weekend that he seemed fairly happy with he actually said after the race that he thought he was very strong everywhere apart from qualifying which obviously is Monaco so that actually does you no good whatsoever but he was relatively upbeat about things although it's getting to the point where obviously he needs to turn that that upbeatness into a few more results, but I'm sure he will do because he's Fernando Alonso. But one driver that I was pleased to see do what they did was Antonio Giovinazzi. He was a little bit hamstrung because he made Q3, which was a great effort, but then he had to start on the softs and so he was vulnerable to drivers behind, ended up 10th, which might seem a little bit disappointing given that uh, he could have been a, a, place or, a place or two higher. But no, we're starting to see Giovinazzi be consistently decent aren't we which is which is good <laughs> consistently decent sounds down with faint praise but he's always annoyed me with how erratic he's been but he's he's had five pretty good weekends at worst this season yeah and we haven't seen any of the silly scrappy mistakes and he's been consistently quicker than Kimi in qualifying and yeah this was a very very solid race um also the the alpha it got it got a new floor to join the z floor club this weekend and it's definitely more competitive this weekend. I don't know if that's because there was just something about it that's in its DNA that's suited to that track or whether it, it, we, this, this will be reflected as we go to other tracks and it's, it's, it's a result of the upgrade. So it'll be interesting to monitor that and see if it, they can start nudging into that little that, that group ahead of it because it's so far been in a no-man's land. Um, and, and this weekend it was right in the main, you know, in, in among that productive part where you can um, realistically look at um, coming into a weekend, um, expect to score points. Do you think that the, um, do you think that that opportunity for Alpha is partly because of what helped um, Ferrari as well? Because obviously, I think we've seen this weekend that 
while obviously it's good on at low speed especially the ferrari is quite clearly a a, a much improved car and a, and a very decent car and at a track where the engine deficit is presumably um less emphasized uh in monaco ferrari is obviously then able to make an even bigger step towards the front is it likely to be a similar story with alpha because obviously that car has looked pretty decent in midfield it has looked better than than last year i think they seem to have been quite happy with the step that they've made Giovinazzi, as you said ed has been impressive at uh, throughout the start of the season and probably unlucky not to score points before now so then coming to a track that's a bit less power sensitive it can then excel a little bit more in that midfield is that oversimplifying it or is that a, another factor no, I think the fact it was less power sensitive circuit was significant. I asked Chevy Pujolar, the head of trackside engineering, about that, and that was one of the factors that he accepted was part of the story. But also, they're they're making some good, steady progress. It's just a really good all round car. But overall, I, I was just pleased to see Giovinazzi just get that little bit extra out of it because sometimes you look at Alpha and you think, oh, it wouldn't have taken much more to get a little bit more out of it. But Giovinazzi's had a lot of bad luck this year, so pleased to see him uh, him deliver that. So yeah, I think. They're a team that should continue to hover around that sort of Q2 area and be in the mix for the odd point here and there for the for the rest of the season. Well, Scott, should we have a look at the debutants? Three drivers had their first Monaco Grand Prix weekend. They ended up in the last three positions uh, behind Williams pairing George Russell and Nicholas Satifi, who just drove around where the Williams kind of was and the good Russell qualifying performance, but the Williams wasn't going to do any more than that in the race. So we had Yuki Tsunoda crashed on Thursday. Mick Schumacher crashed on Saturday and missed qualifying. Surprisingly, Nikita Mazepin didn't find the wall. And was at his happiest, the most confident in the car that he's been all season. Which is, um, well, I suppose if you're going to wait for any race to find a breakthrough in terms of your ability to hold on to the car, then Monaco is a pretty good place to, to, to do that. Mazepin actually was, especially on Thursday, pieced together a really good day and it was just solid the rest, the rest of the time. I, th- I guess... I guess it was a bit of a baptism of fire because for, for all three of them, I said earlier when we were talking about Avatari that Sonoda just didn't have what Gasly had this, this weekend. And I, re- I remember seeing something from him in the build-up to the race where he'd sort of said he was banking on experience. You know, he said he'd been to places like Macau and maybe that would help in terms of adjusting to, to, to Monaco. Um, I think you need a little bit more for Monaco than having driven... Macau in a Formula 3 car to be honest um, and Sonoda just he's just not on a great run at the moment is he so Monaco not the best place to come when you don't have any experience of it Mick was um, Mick was a bit ragged uh, he'd had the wall hit hadn't he um, earlier on in the weekend and then yeah the big big shunt at the end of of FP3 but he put a good move on Mazepin on the first lap. It was almost like a sort of there was like an you could see it in the background of the the world feeds coverage on the opening lap. It was just like an incidental lunge from Mick <laughs> into the hairpin on the first lap. Um, but I don't know what happened to him. I, I lost track of his race. Um, I know that he he fell back didn't need later on. I, I guess the main thing for all three of them is that they, broadly speaking, kept out of trouble during the Grand Prix itself. Yeah, Mick was ahead of Mazepin and had pulled away, but then towards the end of the first stint, he was having fuel feed problems, so the engine was not pulling, coming out of some of the slower corners, it was just stuttering, so he had he was ordered to let Mazepin pass because it took them a while to sort out that problem, but yeah, uh, solid for Mazepin. He's talked about spending time with the team in between races and 
they seem to be understanding each other a little bit more than, that, than they have been. But at the end of the race, he did. I think he apologised over the radio for not saying a great deal because he said that something like that was the hardest experience he's ever had in a racing car doing the the Monaco Grand Prix. So yeah, his best performance yet. There's still still nothing uh, particularly extraordinary, but after his uh, difficult start, at least he's uh, getting somewhere. So let's come back to the front, Mark. Monaco's always a bit of a one-off, isn't it? Do you, do you see this as a particularly significant one in the World Championship battle? Obviously, it's given Red Bull the initiative. And there's a, bit, a little bit of the uh, the fun stuff off track with people talking about, Hamilton talking about Verstappen needing, needing to prove himself and Verstappen saying, no, I don't need to prove myself. I do my talking on the track. So it's just this this championship narrative is just bubbling along nicely in the background, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean, this is the best possible result for the, the championship. And remember, we were saying after Spain that it, it, it was looking like a pattern of um, in the de- development of the between the two cars that Mercedes was pulling ahead. But I questioned that. And I said that coming to Monaco, I was very confident that Red Bull would, would win. Um, I, I wasn't thinking that they would have to uh, you know, rely on Ferrari's pole sitting car to fail to do that. But um, in terms of the... The ebb and flow between Red Bull and Mercedes, this, this was definitely a Red Bull sort of track. Um, I have a feeling that we, we, we're we about to go to a bunch of tracks where the Mercedes will be really strong. Um, so we could, you know, get that narrative changing yet again. Um, but it's, it's, it's close enough. The two cars are close enough that it... The, the, the traits of the track are determining the outcome, and that's 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 great. Um, and and the two drivers are, you know, still absolutely. There's there's going to be very little to choose between them, I think, in in terms of um, points, as we as we get in the 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 run into the the late run into the season. That that, that I think that's quite a realistic hope, mm-hmm. and um, to, to have a, a title contest contest between drivers of two different teams, it's 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 perfect, isn't it? Yeah, the season is continuing to deliver five races in. Let's just hope it keeps going, as I as I keep saying. And the Monaco Grand Prix, yeah, great weekend. And well done to Max Verstappen for getting victory in the illustrious race. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. There's a huge amount of stuff to read there. Mark Hughes' race analysis will be up there by the time this is published, I'd have thought. I, of course, have my driver ratings where I shall tell you about everybody's weekend and uh, give them a rating out of 10, then you get the chance to disagree with it vehemently in our in our listener debate. Scott's working on various things. He's having a look at the, the Valtteri Bottas catastrophe and also looking at the issue of age and experience of the, of the podium finishers because this was the third youngest podium in F1 history. So we've got some, uh, some new drivers, I say new drivers, young drivers making a big impact trying to take over the whole show. Do check out our sister podcasts, including the Race IndyCar podcast. Of course, the Indy 500 is coming up and bring back V10s. And if videos your thing, head to our YouTube channel. Just search for the race. Well, it's been a great Monaco Grand Prix. The season is continuing to give us exactly what we want, which is a great battle between the top two. So join us soon for more from the Race F1 podcast on what we hope is going to be an F1 championship battle for the ages. 